Well, I came across this uh, story about these um, priests who were members of a monastery, and uh, sometimes they're referred to as monks, and they were a member of this uh, religious order, this monastery that um, was uh, really uh, deep in the woods, separated from society and culture, and they, their religious order, they took uh, a rigid vow of silence was part of their religious order. And their vow could only be broken once a year on Valentine's Day uh, by only one priest or monk. The monk could only speak one sentence on Valentine's Day, otherwise they had to be silent. So one Valentine's Day, Brother Thomas had his turn to speak, and this is what he said. Remember, only one sentence, once a year on Valentine's Day. And he said, broke the silence by saying, I love the delightful mashed potatoes we have had every year with the Valentine's Day roast. (laughs) And then he sat down. Silence ensued for 365 days. And the next Valentine's Day, Brother Michael got his turn. And he said... Breaking the silence, I think the mashed potatoes are lumpy, and I hate them. (laughs) And then everything went silent. A whole other year passed, 365 days. And the the following Valentine's Day, Brother Paul, it was his turn to speak. And he rose and said, breaking the silence, I am sick and tired of all this constant bickering. Well, there's one scripture that we're going to talk about love on purpose, and it'll be on your screen, John 3.16. A very well-known verse, and we're going to unpack it today as we talk about love on purpose. What a great day to remind ourselves of the love of God. Do you ever need to be reminded that God loves you? Uh, I do. I need to be reminded of that every day, every moment, seems like I need to be reminded. Let's read it together on the screen. You don't have to stand up. Just let's read it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You may have grown up with the King James where it says His only begotten Son. But it speaks about the love of God. That is the golden text of Scripture that reminds us of God's great love. Obviously, there's multiple Scripture. Really, you could argue and say from Cover to cover, this book is about the love of God. John said in his uh, epistle, God is love. The very essence of God is love. And this morning, I want us to look at four areas. And I'm going to leave that scripture up there and just kind of perhaps unpack it. And you'll see maybe more in that scripture theologically than you might have thought or maybe not have considered before. But I want us to look at four areas as we unpack and talk about God's love or His love on purpose. The first is the perimeter of God's love. Perimeter. We have a perimeter of this property. It means the boundaries, the width. For God so loved the world. We're talking about the width of God's love. He loves all people. Red, yellow, black, or white. They are precious in His sight. For God loves... We always sing the little children of the world. Uh, he's not selective. He's not, 
exclusive. And this was somewhat of a radical statement to the Jewish hearers. Now, I didn't remind you in context in John 3, this is part of that dialogue that Jesus has with a chief Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And the Bible says that Nicodemus came at night and wanted to inquire and ask questions about Jesus. Not sure whether he was being sent by the others, but he wanted to find out. Remember, he acknowledged that he must be someone who was sent from God because Nicodemus said that no one could do the miracles that you do unless they came from God. And we see later on that Nicodemus was very sympathetic to Jesus. And he came at night. And uh, you could say he was Nick at night. But uh, I knew that was a cheap joke, but had to work it in somehow. But God, to the Jewish, to the Jewish hearer, they certainly understood and recognized that God's love had especially been set upon them as God's chosen people. And what, unfortunately, it resulted into, or they always had to guard against this, there was always this tension, was that exclusive love that God had for them as His covenant people, that they could sometimes fall into the idea that God was, did not love other people. Well, there was certainly an exclusivity of God's love upon His chosen people, but that's not a New Testament idea. You remember Jonah, big fish, ran from God, right? You remember that story? Uh, what was he running from? God told him, I want you to go and preach to the Ninevites. Now, it doesn't matter if you know who the Ninevites are, but they were not Israelites. They were not Jews. They were pagans. They were Gentiles. They were not people of the covenant. And yet God said, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach to them. Jonah said, I don't want to do that because, now get this, wouldn't you like to hire this guy as your evangelist pastor? He said, I don't want to do that because if I preach to them, they're going to convert and follow you. And then I'm going to be stuck with them and I have to love them. And he was like, I don't want anything to do with them. Now, if you know anything about the Ninevites, they were an evil, cruel people. My point being is that God's love for the world is not just a New Testament idea. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, the promise given to Abraham is that through his seed, ultimately fulfilled and realized in Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this is not just something New Testament, but to the Jewish mind, they, they, had, to, they had a little struggle with that because they, almost to an exclusive uh, anti-anybody else, maybe it was a concept they were not always comfortable with and pushed back against. Uh, right before John 3.16, there is verse 15, and it reads that uh, it talks about the whosoever, uh, for whoever believes in Christ may have eternal life. So that's what Jesus is talking about. God loved the world. The Greek word is there, the cosmos, the, the earth that he made. The, the Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God has not ceded any real estate to Satan. This is his earth. This is his people. Do you realize that even people that are the most estranged from God, let's kind of put it in something maybe we can... Uh, works for us, members of ISIS, I mean, the most cruel of the bunch, was made in the image of Almighty God. 
Now that may be radical for you to get your minds around. But God says, I love them because I created them. He obviously doesn't love the evil like he doesn't love the sin that is involved in your life and my life. But he made us in the image of God. And so there's an aspect in which his love is poured out for the world. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved you even when you were unlovely. He loved you when you were the least to be loved. The Bible says that he set his affection upon you and determined that Christ would be the atonement for all those that would come to him and believe in him. You know, this is one of the unique truths of Christianity. I read an account about a religious conference many, many years back where the wise and scholarly were gathered together in a spirited debate about what was unique about Christianity. What set it apart? Someone suggested that Christianity, apart from other other religions, was the concept of incarnation, the idea that God took human form in Jesus. And somebody else in another religion uh, responded to this group and said, well, actually there are other faiths that believe that that their God has appeared in human form. Another suggestion was offered about the resurrection, the belief that death is not the final word, that the tomb was found empty, and someone shook their head and said, well, there are other religions that have similar accounts of people returning from the dead. And then as the story is told, C.S. Lewis, you remember you've heard of C.S. Lewis, uh, a uh, writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, mere Christianity, a tremendous writer and um, a defender of the faith and wrote great literature. But he was a committed believer in Jesus Christ and one who was able to bring and defend it uh, before a doubting world. And he walked into this room and he asked, what's all this arguing about? And everyone turned to his direction and tried to explain themselves that they were debating what was unique about Christianity. And C.S. Lewis said, oh, that's easy. I can tell you what's unique about Christianity, and it's grace. That's what's unique about Christianity. And the room fell silent. Lewis continued that Christianity uniquely claims God's love comes free of charge. No strings attached. Every other religion has some strings, some work that you have to attain. No other religion can make that claim. And after a moment of commenting, C.S. Lewis had a point. Buddhists, for example, follow the eightfold path to enlightenment. It's not a free ride. They have to attain a certain uh, attainment there. Hindus believe in karma, that your actions uh, continually affect the way the world will treat you, and there's nothing that comes to you not set in motion by your actions. Judaism and all its traditions of the law uh, implies that God has requirements for people to be acceptable to Him. Islam, God is a God of judgment, not a God of love. Whatever Allah wills, Allah wills. You live to appease Him. What makes Christianity unique, as is, according to Lewis, I thought it was a valid point, is the grace of God. Philip Yancey, another wonderful writer, 
says there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. There is nothing we can do to make God love us less. We're talking about the perimeter, the width of God's love. But secondly, notice in John 3.16, not just the perimeter or the width of God's love, but also the proof of God's love. The Bible says that he gave, he gave his only son, or in the King James or New King James, his only begotten son. Max Lucado, I'm sure many of you have heard of Max Lucado, makes this statement. I thought it was excellent. He says, there are many reasons, many reasons God saves you. To bring glory to himself is one, one reason. To appease his justice, to demonstrate his sovereignty. But one of the sweetest reasons, Max Lucado says, that God saved you is because he is fond of you. He likes having you around. He thinks you're the best thing to come down the pike in quite a while. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, and yet he chose your heart And the Christmas gift he sent to you in Bethlehem, face it, friend, God is crazy about you. I like the way Max Lucado writes. Kind of on another spectrum, theologian John Stott says this in his book, The Cross of Christ, which, again, I would recommend reading. He says, God could have quite justly abandoned us to our fate. He could have left us alone to reap the fruit of our wrongdoing and to perish in our sins. It is what we deserved. But he didn't do that. Because God loved us, he came after us in Christ. He pursued us even to the desolate anguish of the cross where he bore our sin. He bore our guilt, judgment, and death. Listen, it takes a hard and stony heart to remain unmoved by love like that, that God pursued us. He gave His only begotten Son. And in this verse, notice three little things within this idea of how does He prove it. One, it says He gave. That's His provision. The English Standard Version, if you use that like I do, uh, has a footnote as an alternate translation in the Greek that is legitimate, and it reads this way, for this is how... God loved the world. He gave. How did he demonstrate his love? He gave his son. You know, the talk is cheap. God did more than promise. He gave, and it was a proof of his giving, his provision. Not only was his provision a demonstration of his proof, but notice also the price. It says his only, his only The value of the Father's love for us. Not only was He willing to give, but He was willing to give the only one He had. Now, you all are fairly attractive, nice, outstanding people. I will admit that. But let me tell you something. I have a grandbaby who's nine months old. And she is the most beautiful child God ever made. But I would really be lying to say that I would allow her to be murdered for you. I'd be lying. I'm not that spiritual. God allowed his only son, his only son, 
to be murdered for you. Now, not just for you, but potentially, I know he's dead, so Jihad John, Jeffrey Dahmer, Charles Manson. We could go down the line. God gave his only son to be an atonement for all sin to those that would believe in his name. I love you, but I'm not sure I'm willing to give kindling for you. God did and made that choice when he proved by giving, and the price was his only son. And that brings us not just to the provision, the price, but also to the person, his son. God's love is not some abstract concept. It's not just some philosophical idea, but it was proven tangibly that Jesus really was born, Jesus really lived for 33 and a half years, and was really crucified bodily upon the cross. God's love was made manifest in the world when he sent Jesus Christ into this world, and Jesus Christ understood his mission His purpose was not to come and be a good teacher, not to become a philosopher, not just become a religious zealot, not become a revolutionary, but Jesus understood that he was born to die, to give his life. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating droplets of blood, and said, Father, my desire is that this cup The cup of your wrath. My desire is that this would pass from me, but not, what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. This was his only son. In the Greek, monogenes means one and only, unique. God's supreme proof was giving his only unique son. God does not have many more sons. He has one only begotten son. Verse 17 of chapter 3 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved, rescued through him. John would write also in 1 John 4.10 in his epistle, this is real love. You want real love? It's not chocolates, guys. It's not a card. And be careful you didn't get the dollar card because they check on stuff like that. I'm just giving you a heads up, all right? This is real love, not, listen, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You want real love, real proof of love? Look to the cross, look to Christ. Charles Wesley wrote that wonderful hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues. And one of the lines says, See all your sins on Jesus laid. The Lamb of God was slain. His soul was once an offering made for every soul of man. John Newton, who penned the wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, said, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. This is why we sing that there's something about that name. This is why we preach that salvation is found in no one else but the name of Christ. 
we testify to the hurting and downcast to call upon the name of Christ. We pray for the sick. We cast out demons in the authority of that name, the Bible tells us. And we look in anticipation that the one who bears that name will literally return as he has promised to this earth one day. What is that name? It's the name of Jesus. It's the only name. It's the only name. The apostles said that there is that one name given under heaven by which men and women must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. There is exclusivity in that name. God does not have plan Bs. He doesn't have backup. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. You say, well, I don't like I kind of I think all religions eventually work their way to God. Well, you believe something that is quite different than this Bible, and you certainly believe something that Jesus directly contradicted when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm a way. I'm one of the many paths. I am exclusively the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. So if you want to find your way to God, it is through the door of Jesus Christ. The perimeter of God's love... God so loved the world, the proof He gave His only Son. And thirdly, notice in this verse, the prerequisite for God's love. That whoever, whoever does what? Believes in Him will not perish. That believes in Him. Now, you might have said, now wait a minute, I thought you just got through saying that this is grace. But there is part of that grace, there is a sense in which there must be an acceptance of what Jesus has accomplished, of who Jesus is. Uh, the, he reaches to the lowest of the low, and he reaches to the meanest of the mean. Uh, whoever. Are you part of the whoever? The whoever. It isn't the whoever. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant born in the United States and votes Republican. Get that out of your brain. That has poisoned the church. It's the whoever's. They may not agree with you politically. They might not agree with you on your views of whatever. But the whosoever's is the lowest of the low, the meanest of the mean, and everybody in between. First Corinthians, listen to this. This is from the message paraphrase, which is not as accurate as a translation, but sometimes it sheds fresh light upon Scripture. It's worthy of devotional reading. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 from the message. Don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in His kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. A number of you know from experience what I'm talking about. For not so long ago, you were on that list. Since then, since then, you have been cleaned up and given a fresh start by Jesus, our Master, our Messiah, and by our God present in us, the Holy Spirit. What's he saying is, look, it's easy to say, oh, the trouble with the world is all those people. Well, guess what? You are part of those people until God rescued you and you saw 
your need for the gospel and even that gift of repentance and faith is a gift of God. So what do I mean by prerequisite of God's love? Are we contradicting the unconditionality? Are we saying there's something I must do? Remember several years back when the government had this bright idea that they would stay up late one night and just print money and send it out to everybody to stimulate the economy? Remember that great idea? And you may have received one of those stimulus checks, okay? Some of you may have had a big one, may have had a little one. Frankly, I don't remember it, but I I think I got one. Must not have been real dramatic (laughs) in what I got. But the government sent you those nice checks, and what did you do? Oh, I'm not going, I'm too above that. I'm just going to... I'm just going to file it away. I won't. No, you deposited that thing before sundown. Right? Well, that's what you must do to receive what God has done. You must believe, trust in Jesus Christ. You must endorse the gift, so to speak. Deposit Him into your overdrawn account. That's receiving and trusting in what God has done. That's what we're talking about when we talk about this prerequisite. It says, whoever believes. You must believe. And I'm not talking about believing like I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States. Better word is, am I, have I trusted in Christ? Have I trusted in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? So whenever you hear the word believe, just put the word trust there. John 3.18, in the same passage, whoever believes in Him, trusts in Him, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed or trusted in the name of the only Son of God. In chapter 5, verse 24 of John, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Paul would write in Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is a prerequisite to receiving this promise. But fourthly, notice with me the promise, the promise of God's love. It says, but whoever believes in him should not perish, and here's the promise, but have eternal life. That's the promise. God says, I so love the world that I gave my only son, that whoever trusts in me, believes in me, should not perish, should not die, but have eternal life. That speaks to the height of God's love. Someone has also said God takes us from the guttermost to the uttermost. I like that. John 10.10, you know how it reads, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Listen to the New Living Translation that reads this way. The thief's purpose, he's talking about Satan. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give them, Jesus says, a rich and satisfying life. 
the, the happiest people on the face of the earth should be people that know Jesus. Should be people that have had their lives transformed. Does that mean you're tiptoeing through the tulips? No. Does that mean you're immune from disappointment and heartache and, and frustration and, and kids that need Christ even though you did everything right? Is that, does that make us immune from that? No. Paul wrote from a Philippian jail. And even though he was suffering in imprisonment, he could say, I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What's he talking about? Is he on drugs? Huh? No, he is saying, I have learned and I am learning that the joy of the Spirit is not contingent of what's going on in my world because I live, I live in another world. Now, I'm not talking about being a space cadet, but it's saying that my, my faith, my hope, my, my, my joy is not anchored in who's winning this debate or this debate. Should you care who gets elected? Yeah, of course you should care. But you know what? I'm going to wake up the next day and Jesus is still going to be on the throne. And the kingdom of God is marching forward. And guess what? I'm a part of that. And I don't have to worry about all the nonsense that goes on. So, Jesus, the promise of God's love, the eternal, here's the point, the eternal, everlasting life starts the nanosecond you ask Jesus to come into your life. You trust in Him. And it's not just a hope for heaven but it's a promise for right now. It's a promise from right now. Paul would write this. This helped me kind of round and understand this. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 from the New Living Translation, he says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to the language. Who has blessed us. Okay? That's something that is done in the past with present ramifications, who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. That means the born-again believer can tap into the heavenly benefits and resources right now. Right now. Because why? We are united with Christ. That even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. You hear me quote this quote by Spurgeon that says, Surely God must have chosen me before I was ever born, because he never would have chosen me thereafter. (laughs) We can tap into his love, his joy, his peace, his mercy, his faith, his glory, his power, his holiness, his life. We can tap into that right now. We can access it. So what do you think about the love of God? The perimeter of God's love, God's soul of the world, the proof of God's love, He gave His only Son. The prerequisite for God's love is whoever believes or trusts in Him. And the promise of God's love is that we can have eternal life. God makes that promise to tap into the blessings of the kingdom of God right now. Years ago, a young man had quarreled quite harshly with his father, left home. And he continued to keep in touch with his mother and wanted very badly to come home for Christmas. But he was afraid his father would not allow him. 
And his mother wrote to him and urged him to come home, but he did not feel he could until he knew or had the assurance that his father had forgiven him. Finally, there was no time for any more letters, and his mother wrote and said that she would talk with the father, and if he had forgiven him, she would tie a white cloth on the tree which grew right alongside the railroad tracks near their home. And he would see, he could see it, because he was on this train, he could see it before the train reached the station. And so consequently, if there was no white cloth on that tree, he better keep going. So the young man started home. And as the train drew near his house, he was so nervous, he said to his friend that was traveling with him, I can't bear to look. Sit in my place and look out the window. And I'll tell you what the tree looks like, and you tell me whether there's a white cloth on it or not. So his friend changed places there in the the seating of the car where he could look out the window. And he was looking out the window, and after a bit, the friend said, Yes, yes, I see the tree. And the son asked, Tell me, is there a white cloth tied to the tree? And for a moment, his buddy didn't say anything. And then he turned and in a gentle voice said, there's a white cloth on every limb of that tree. And my friend, Jesus Christ is God's white cloth on the tree of Calvary to let you know that the Father's love and forgiveness is abundant and free to the whosoever that will come and receive the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. If today is like any other Valentine's Day, over a billion dollars will be spent on chocolate. Over a billion dollars will be spent on cards. 218 roses, they estimate, will be sold on Valentine's Day weekend in the pursuit or the attempt to demonstrate love. But the Bible, if I could even use this phrase without being sacrilegious, the Bible tells us that God sent the first Valentine. He showed what true love was. He demonstrated His love for you and me by sending Jesus Christ. He so loved the world, His only Son. He demonstrated His love by sending His one and only Son. His one and only Son to be the sacrifice for your screw-ups and mine. My sin. God didn't just love you enough to tell you about it. He could have written it on the sky of the heaven. He could have done that, right? He could have had angels just parade around you know, uh, the, the clouds in the neighborhood just announcing God's love. He could have done all that. He could have just dropped little notes like manna down every once in a while and just little, like those little love heart candies, you know, those things that we used to get in, in school. He could have done all that, but you know what? He didn't do that. He said, this is my own son, and I'm going to send him to demonstrate, and not just demonstrate, not just be a great example, but to literally pay the penalty for our sin. To be our, an old word that's rich in theology, our propitiation, that his death would turn the wrath of God. It would satisfy the demands of the law and satisfy the wrath of God that was directed towards us. We deserve that wrath. We deserve that punishment because the Bible says that we were born in sin. But Jesus Christ took that upon himself. He turned God's wrath from us 
and paid that penalty. So my friend, if you're not in, if, if Colossians 3, 3 says that my life is hidden with Christ in God, if your life is not wrapped up in Jesus, then you're on your own. You're on your own. Give it your best shot. But I'm telling you, it will not come close. You need Jesus as your advocate. You need Jesus as your life. You need him to, you need to be wrapped up in Jesus. So when the father looks at Tim, when he looks at Frank, when he looks at Mike, when he looks at, he doesn't see them. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ that they're clothed in. And if he doesn't see the righteousness of Jesus, and you're not wrapped up in that righteousness in Jesus, my friend, you're on your own. And you, you know, people say, oh, uh, just give me justice. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I don't, justice, no. I need mercy. I need grace. I need the love of God in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm going to ask Sherry and whoever else is coming to close us this morning in worship. Some of you may, we're not going to sing it, but I couldn't help but mention it. One of my favorite hymns, we would have sang it if I didn't spring it on her at uh, 10.30 last night, but uh, I'll have to plan better. But uh, one of my favorite hymns, written by Frederick Lehman, The Love of God. Now don't play just yet, let me read this because it will be a little uh, confusing. Frederick Lehman wrote this, some of you know this wonderful hymn. It's been done contemporary also. The love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints an angel's song. But my favorite is the last stanza of that old hymn that says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk, stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure. Well, we're going to sing about the love of God. If you would stand as we do that, Sherry's going to lead us.